You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The stereotype, whether we want to dismantle it or acknowledge it, holds that those who teach college English begin a quest in graduate school to be rid of teaching writing. As early as the mid-20th century, Richard M. Weaver told the same story, and Weaver was among the first to take that stereotype not as an acknowledgement of the nature of things, but as the story of a fall, a decline from a day when the professor of rhetoric stood as the pinnacle of undergraduate education to a moment when those who still teach it in mid-career must have fumbled somehow. Mercifully, in the last decades of the 20th century and the first decades of the 21st, a sort of rhetorical renaissance has blossomed in English departments. And Dr. Heather Hoover's book, Composition as Conversation, Seven Virtues for Effective Writing, has taken a place in that grand banquet of teachers who celebrate writing rather than fleeing the same. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Hoover to talk with us about the book. Heather, it's been a while. It's been too long, but I'm glad to hear your voice again. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And listeners, uh, if you notice that I'm opening up the show a little bit different, it's because uh, Heather and I were both undergraduate English majors at Milligan College, now Milligan University, back in the mid-1990s. So, uh, you know, we have both uh, undertaken academic careers. Uh, Mine ended a bit earlier, but that's all right. Um, Heather, I want to start by situating your project in relationship with other sort of broad approaches to composition. If others aren't writing about composition as conversation, what are some of the other more popular metaphors and concepts, and what work does conversation do as a metaphor and a framework that those others don't? Well, you know, I have always heard that writing is a process. I'm not sure that's actually a metaphor, but of course it is a process, but you know, that's one of my main things is that when you get too focused on the pieces that you lose sight of the whole. And I remember my uh, my daughter bringing home her essay sheet that she had to use in the in the third grade to frame her essay, and it was the hamburger model. And maybe you've heard that one. You have the buns. The oh, interest- I've heard. I've heard. Yeah, and the meat in the middle. And I, I don't know how exactly that. It doesn't feel like it works out exactly for me. Um, you know, I think Neil Gaiman said something like it. Writing is like cooking. Um, so there's lots of cooking metaphors out there. And then, you know, a lot of people talk about writing um, as as like a path to clarity. I think I remember Orwell saying something about it's like a window or something like that. But um, all of those metaphors, you know, a lot of them have to do with creative writing. And I think they have a lot in common. But if you think about writing as a conversation, what I think it really does is um, familiarizes it for us. You know, we we all know how to have conversations and we know how to change our contexts and we know how to introduce ourselves in a formal setting and at a funeral or at a job interview uh, that you'd use different things to do that. And so for students who come to me who are completely terrified of writing as a requirement, when you tell them that they are at ease they you know it's not it's not easy but they are way more at ease than if you think that writing is a process (laughs) right right that makes good sense and I mean you know I I think it's even more so than you know sort of the as far as I know the first you know example of a a metaphor for writing when Aristotle calls it a power of discovery it's like boy that that's daunting what you know that (laughs) conversation sounds much more friendly 
It is. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of a low stakes way of entering a high stakes enterprise. So. Indeed, indeed. Well, this is a book of practices. And one of the practices that caught my attention immediately is annotating the absent. First of all, I love the, uh, the, the A sounds there, but for those who don't teach writing, um, why is it that we mainly annotate what's present in an article or a book? And for those who do teach writing, uh, what benefits derive from annotating what's not there? I think it's obvious that we would annotate what is there, right? That's the obvious move that we would make. But I think when you spend a little more time with something and you really let it do the talking, the whatever it is, the research article or the um, poem or the song or whatever it is that you're working with, you begin to see the absences. And um, I think immediately of the most recent uh, Barbie movie, right, uh, where she walks into the boardroom and there are no women and seated in positions of power. And she is seated in the position of secretarial or administrative assistance. So when you annotate the absent, if you're out, if you um, looking at that scene, I mean, I think the creators of the movie wanted to make that point that the women were absent from the positions of power and the narrative making of the Barbie, right? So when we think about looking at what's not there, it can tell us a story of relationships. It can tell us a story of power. It can tell us a story of, um, you know, meaningful interactions that are not there. That makes good sense. Now, here's a question that, you know, occurs to me on occasion Sometimes it seems, and you know, if this is an illusion, dispel my illusion, because I always like to my, have my illusions dispelled. It seems like uh, when, especially, you know, sort of very prominent academic voices uh, point to absence, uh, it feels a little bit like a game of gotcha. It's like, aha, you didn't mention this perspective, did you, Whitey? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> or you know, fill in whatever stereotype you want there, right? right. Uh, you know, I mean... What kinds of practices, I mean, you know, help students who are nervous about that? Because, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember, I mean, you know, one of the great fears of college freshmen is that, you know, OK, I'm going to be judged for what I say. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how do we how do we give some comfort there or do we give comfort? I always send my students back to the text. So in the example that I give in the book, we, we just found a bulletin board in the education wing, and it had lots of different examples of what it might mean to be a university student. And most of them were evidence of school spirit in some way, shape or form, um, but they didn't include a lot of fine arts and they didn't include a lot of um, actually really academic things as well. And to that end, I mean, the, the text itself was a bulletin board that was supposed to promote university identity. And it was very clearly not doing that for a good portion of university identity. And so the text situated as it was in a place that was supposed to call to mind university identity was lacking. And so I think it's a balance, you know, I'm not, I didn't look at the bulletin board and say, well, I do not see any animals represented. This university must be anti-animal. Uh, but the university context itself is not one that would lend itself to thinking that way. That makes good sense. Another one of those practices that I enjoyed reading and thinking about is pairing direct research with what you call parallel research. So talk our listeners through this one, and then we can get back to some more conceptual conversation. But I, I just love these practices. 
Mm, I love parallel research because it allows my uh, undergraduate writers, especially my sophomores, to engage in really big topics, um, but on a very specific level. So for example, I have a young woman right now looking at the access to women's health care in Elizabethton, Tennessee. They recently closed our women's pavilion at Sycamore Shoals, which is the local hospital there. It's It's been about eight years, but it's it's gone. And that that served a lot of different areas. So she is not going to find a lot of research out there specifically about Elizabethton, Tennessee, but she will find a lot of research about rural women's health access. And so what she's doing is some parallel research on, on places that are similar to our place. And then she will pair it with more specific data from this area, which she can get from the health department and she can get from Sycamore Shoals itself. And uh, that alone wouldn't give her enough really to make a clear point. But the parallel research gesturing towards a larger body of work will allow her to make a very tidy point when she when she does finally get there in the writing. I, th I think what I like best about this is this it's the antidote for there aren't any sources. Exactly. Um, because boy, do I get tired of hearing that. It also allows them to really write about meaningful things. So she's going to be a nurse. She cares about women's health. The writing about rural health care for women would be great, but writing about it in her community, that's literally stepping into the conversation right here where she lives. And I love that. That makes really good sense. Now, when I got to see this book for the first time, or maybe it was when I saw the book proposal, uh, I've been in conversation with this text for a, a little bit myself. Uh, I was pleased to see conversations about Heidegger, especially concerning his etymology of the Greek logos. Now, I know that uh, we have some classicists who listen, and they love to hate Heidegger's etymologies, but I enjoy them without the baggage of being really good at Greek. So let's talk to our listeners for a moment. What does Heidegger do with that Greek noun that Christian preachers love so much? You know, I, I'm not sure exactly what Christian preachers are. I guess they assume that it's like the articulate. Yeah, 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 the you, you've never word. heard a preacher say what logos really means is. You know, maybe I'm going to the wrong churches, Nathan. Maybe you're going to the right churches because <laughs> it, it bugs the heck out of me. I, I often tell my students if a preacher says what the Greek really means is that you can just tune out at that point because, yeah. Anyway, that's another conversation. Talk about Heidegger and Logos. Well, I mean, I assume that a lot of people talk about it as being the articulated word, the spoken word, the end of the story. And and that's kind of what in, intrigued me about this little section that I had ended up reading about Heidegger was that he, he talks about it in its verb form, meaning to lay before. And uh, this idea of laying down and laying in um, this whole idea of not speaking actually, that there's a whole component of logos, which is the better part of wisdom, which is to listen before you speak. And I, I think that's probably even there in the, in the, in the John text, you know, the idea of this, there's a silence before this, before the word, there's a gathering in, we could probably talk about all sorts of interesting things, perichoresis, any number of other stuff, we, <laughs> but that idea, um, that we would listen before we would fully participate in a conversation that before we had a spoken word, there would be 
a lot of laying in that would happen. And that comes through the research and through the conversations that we have um, with our peers and, and with the texts themselves. Yeah. And I mean, that that is one of those things I, I often wonder, you know, to what extent that is a function of the modern library age. And here's what I mean by that is that, you know, when Aristotle, you know, writes about Logos, it is simply the articulated speech, but there also aren't uh, expectations there that you cite your sources uh, yeah. the way that there are now. So, I mean, uh, honestly, I think that's probably an improvement because it actually documents the ways that other voices influence us. Um, but, you know, the the historical contingency of it is always what strikes me when I when I read those older rhetorical texts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in that same chapter with Heidegger, you do wade into a long running conversation among writing teachers, uh, namely how the student writers personal experiences relate to public subject matters. You've already talked about that a little bit with the Elizabethan Hospital, but, uh, you know, what makes that such an important uh, conversation to engage in? And why is it so important that uh, our listeners go with your side rather than the opponents? Um, it's interesting because, you know, at the very beginning of my work on this book, I was doing a lot of research on conversation just in general. And the most powerful piece that I read came from a guy named Theodore Zeldin. And he said that we have to be willing to be transformed when we enter conversation. And I think this engagement with where I live and what are my religious and educational backgrounds and things like that, inventorying those things for ourselves helps us be more willing to be transformed. And that feels maybe a little bit, I don't know, maybe a little scary for some of my students, especially because, you know, they don't want to have to change their, their long held beliefs and they're already in college and all these things are are being questioned and interrogated already anyway. But I think there is, there's so much potential to be transformed without necessarily giving up your long held beliefs. Like, you know, and I think I, I talk about that in the book a little bit of a young woman who just thought that people who wanted a higher minimum wage were grubbing for money. They get what they get and they shouldn't throw a fit. And, and um, she went into the research and really, really found that minimum wage wasn't enough to live on. And so came to a moderated opinion instead of the staunch, no, I would never do that. It's a, well, here's what I would do and here's why I would do it. And here's my limit. Here's where I would stop. Yeah. I mean, that raises a question again of our own historical contingency, because I mean, you know, I'm not even talking about the last 150 years. I'm talking about the last 15 years, you know, people uh, our age and older, I'll say it that way, tend to be very taken with, you know, these sort of digital jousts that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, really, it's not even that they don't reward complexity, they punish complexity, yes. right? Uh, you know, if you acknowledge complexity, well, you are objectively on the other side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I here's a question that I've got, and, and I think it's because I'm just so unobservant. Uh, but I mean, among the teacher, among the students, pardon me, that you're teaching right now, have they lost the the taste for blood? Are they tired of all that oh, Facebook yeah. jousting? Or I mean, are they just as uh, are they just as uh, guilty of it as OK Boomer over on Facebook? I think it depends. Um, you know, in the classroom, it is oftentimes you know we work really hard. They get to know each other. We're a small 
university. So they have a lot of relationships with one another. And what we're modeling is that when you see someone as human in the very sort of Emmanuel Levinas kind of sense, right, you begin to see them as, you know, inescapably made in the image of God. And you you don't want to hurt that person. You might disagree with that person, but you you don't want to own them, right? That's That's the thing. But I'll tell you what, I use... For a while, I used anonymous peer reviews because it got a lot better feedback from, for my students. And then post-2020, the first year back in the classroom, I went back to the anonymous peer reviews and they were killer. They were so mean to each other. I had to, I had to stop in the middle of the peer review and say, we can't be this mean. This is not helpful. This is not constructive. So they were out for blood on those on those peer reviews because I, for a lot of reasons, I have lots of hypotheses, but in the anonymous peer review, they were no longer human to each other. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I, 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 I guess, you know, being a little bit more serious, I mean, I, I think my thing is every time I think I've got a sense of the trend among the students I teach, I, I encounter something like that. And I say, well, Maybe I, maybe I was too hasty. So, um, <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I, you know, I, and also maybe it's just, you know, some false optimism on my part. I just, I, I wish that part of our society would die in a hurry and that yeah. we would get back to, you know, like living with human beings, but. It ah, just takes work. Conversation's hard work. It is. Dialogue's it is. <laughs> now you don't call them freshman essay vices. I need to make that my preamble. But I do get a kick out of your discussion of freshman essay vices uh, in the chapter on relatability. Um, How does a focus on being relatable help students stay away from, among other things, the three-prong thesis statement? (laughs) Well, you know, in a conversation, you usually have sort of an overarching premise. um, And you have to convince your partner of the issue, and then you proceed. But you you usually have a very specific thing that you're you're working towards. And you know, in a in just this past week, I read a paper where the young man was um, wanting to evaluate a movie, was going to look at cine, cine, cinematography, excuse me, music and dialogue. And and I is a five page paper, and I said you can do one of these things in five pages and probably one of these things in 12 pages. Um, But when he sat down and talked with me about it, we had a 20 minute conversation about one camera angle. And he was making an argument that the, the tight focus, the aspect ratio was connected to the way that they were telling the story about divorce and that you had to really know the person. You couldn't see anything else about them. They had to be really tight around their face, right? I said, well, say that. <laughs> but when he when he sat down to write the paper, he was just convinced that he needed this three-prong thesis. And um, so when they are stuck in a three-prong thesis, I just say, talk to me about this this little thing right here. Just talk to me about it. And then I ask a question and then they come back and then I ask another question. um, And pretty soon they, it dawns on them and they're like, Oh, I see what you did there. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I, it's fascinating because I mean, you know, when I was teaching, you know, freshman comp in college, I mean, I, I would have lesson plan after lesson plan after lesson plan on, you know, 
okay, we can go from the particular observations to the idea that emerges. We can start with categories and then go to see how they play out. We can do all of these, you know, classical rhetorical structures. And then I'd get the first draft and it was three things about this are alpha, beta, and gamma. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like I said, I, that, that, that was cathartic for me. That was cathartic. Oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad. And I, you know, I think a lot of the practices and the vices that we, we call vices, or maybe we try to train out of them as, as freshman writers come from uh, instruction that is geared towards rooms of huge numbers of kids. And so we want you to organize your paper. It's better to have you have a three-pronged thesis than trying to wade through 36 papers with a a very unclear direction at all. So I, I always tell them, I said, whatever you've done before was meant to help you. And those are like training wheels. And we're not going to, you know, talk trash about whatever you learned before, but we're going to take those training wheels off and we're going to help you be a better writer. I'm glad I'm not the only person writer. that calls them training wheels because that <laughs> I, I absolutely said that many 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 times oh good in See, uh, yeah, college yeah page. so absolutely absolutely now that i mentioned the chapter on relatability and i've mentioned vices i should say something about the seven main chapters of the book as the book subtitle promises each focuses on a virtue that characterizes good writing and i should give a i should give our listeners a chance to hear the story of your list it's not precisely the four cardinal and three theological virtues. And it doesn't look much like Ben Franklin's table of virtues. So where does this list of virtues come from? I, I love this story uh, because it comes directly from my students. Uh, every fall, we come together on the first day of class and I hand out my 26-page syllabus, which is crazy, uh, but, but it has everything in it, right? And so in, as they feel maybe a little overwhelmed, I just say, hey, think about the last person you had a great conversation with. And then I ask them to think about what they talked about and why they thought it was a great conversation. And then I, after they think about that for a little bit, I say, okay, now I want you to write down two adjectives that describe that person. And then we just start putting them on the board and I get tons of different adjectives and some of them are, are the same every year and some of them are surprising. But this year, the 2019 year was the year that generated this list of seven. Um, and there were more on the board that day, but these were the ones that struck me as being so applicable to all students. So that's where it came from. And and I, I love it so much. I do it every year. Very good. Very good. I want the listeners to hear how your concepts give shape to your practices again. We're going to go back to practices. What does it mean when you write that citation should seek to make meaning? And how does that shape the way that you teach students to interact with published sources? Mm, well, I think uh, engaging with research is another kind of conversation, but we haven't always treated it like that. So I have students who come to me and they say, I want to put the research in at the end, um, which is terrifying, right? You you don't want to just drop it in like confetti. Um, so I think we spend a lot of time researching and then we listen and then we summarize and then we synthesize, synthesize and we respond. And I think um, when you can look at a piece of data or a quotation that you've selected out of a research article and then respond to it as if 
it had been spoken to you. If I said, hey, did you know such and such? And you would be like, I did not know that. And I think, <laughs> so your response would be just as crucial as the first piece of data. And I always tell them the piece of data or the, the evidence that you've cited means absolutely nothing without your conversation with it. And so it's a skill that we develop and it using the conversational framework, I think for some of them, it makes research make sense for the very first time ever. Sure, sure. And, and you know, that's one of those things that where I've really appreciated uh, Jerry Graff's little book, uh, They Say, I Say. I know uh, different writing instructors love it and different writing instructors hate it. I'm one that loves it because uh, he actually focuses on he and uh, Kathy, is it Birkenstein? I don't remember. I, and see, I've read others of Jerry Graff's books, but I have not read others of her books. So that's why I know. And I know I've got now I feel like a jerk, but <laughs> I only remembered one of the authors. But um, anyway, I mean, what I like so much about it is that it focuses on, OK, you are actually making knowledge that didn't exist before by responding to these sources. And I say, oh, that's great. That's that that I, I realized I just said a few minutes ago that Aristotle seems too daunting, but that seems like a better kind of daunting. Yeah. 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 And I always say, look, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to have a, a response to something that's been said. And you're one person in a unique space with a unique perspective. And so. And if you do it right, even just combining, you know, three sources, I often tell my students, I mean, odds are statistically those three particular sources haven't been combined the way you're about to combine them. Right. And even if they have, you're going to be adding something with your contribution that didn't exist before. So, you know, I, I, I always tried to instill that. I mean, you know, that even when they are just, you know, 18 year olds in English 101, that, you know, right. they are creating knowledge that didn't exist before. There are things that are possible to know now that weren't possible before. And I think that's cool. I think it's great. I think it's the, one of the great potentials of a of an undergraduate education. You're taking courses together that may never have been taken in this particular order at this particular time. And you're putting together information side by side with other information. And that is what produces intellectual friction, which is, you know, how we get knowledge. <laughs> absolutely. Wisdom. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to hear your riff a little bit on a phrase from your be engaging chapter. And I have no agenda for this riff. Just to show us your thought process. What does it mean to attend to, quote, form and transformation, end quote, when one writes? Well, that comes from a whole section on using poetry as a practice of writing. And um, not maybe not obvious immediately how poetry's practices can influence our academic writing, but I think they absolutely can and should, because academic writing can seem sort of perfunctory and utilitarian and no place for that lyrical flourish or anything. Um, but I, I talk to my students about paying attention, not just to the words that they're reading, but, but attending to the very essence of each sentence they write. And you can't do this while you draft. This has to be a revision practice for almost always. I mean, it's great if it can be a drafting practice, but it's most always a, a revision practice. Um, and sometimes I talk about like, what if you had a budget and you could only spend so many words, like which words would you spend and which words would you keep? And we talk about when we talk about our, our final, you know, our big paper in 211, the 12 to 14 pager, right? 
I talk about the modernists, the modernist poets. I talk about Frank O'Hara and William Carlos Williams and, and Gertrude Stein. And we talk about how they had a lot of love for prepositions <laughs> and, but they had reasons for that love and, and about how a verb can transform a sentence and uh, discoverable objects in your sentences that comes straight from Orwell. And so this idea of form and transformation is is about how we enter conversation, but it's also how we enter conversation with the language that we are using. And it's a it's a way of privileging and taking care with language. And I think I I have a lot of respect for Marilyn Chandler McIntyre's uh, caring for words in a culture of lies for that reason too. Just this idea that language matters and uh, that what we're saying on the page matters too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've I've read that book and loved that book as well. Uh, friends of mine have taught it in freshman writing. Yeah. I, I also think of you know Kenneth Burke's, uh, you know, rhyming phrase, you know, reflecting reality and selecting reality. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and uh, God, Terminus Screens. That's the name of that essay. Uh, somewhere, if Danny Anderson's listening to this, I do remember the name of that essay, Danny. <laughs> that's his favorite Kenneth Burke essay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's one of the things that you know I also try to in part, you know, is that, you know, we are always deciding what our readers pay attention to Mm -hmm. and that, you know, that does happen on the clause level as well as on the paragraph level and things like that. So I dig that. I dig that. Absolutely. Yes. Now in that same chapter, and I mean, you know, listeners, you can tell, uh, of course, listeners, if you listen to very many of my interviews, you know, that I love getting authors to pick fights, Uh, but you pick a fight that many of us who teach writing pick you fire shots at academic prose for ignoring so many things that writing teachers teach. So I'm going to go back to vices. What are the vices of academic writing and how do we teach our student writers to choose a better way? Hmm. Well, I think one of the reasons I'm going to, I'm going to answer a question you didn't ask first because I'm an English major in that. She's annotating the absent listeners. She's annotating the absent. (laughs) Why do academic writers write that way it's because that's how they think academic writing is supposed to look so they read write articles they get published in journals and that's what's expected of them so the very first thing we have to do is model better writing for our students Um, i do a lot of engagement in margins and um, feedback sessions and all sorts of things and so i try to model at the clearest responses that I can. Um, And I try to assign pieces by published authors that are complex, but also clear. Then, and um, one of my students told me that her mom always said, clarity is kindness. And so we, we used to talk about that um, in our classes together as well. So I, you know, I think we, we teach them that, just because it sounds smart and it may not be smart, but we also tell teach them how just because it sounds smart, if it's exclusive, then it's not reaching and doing as much as it can. And I am, I am super okay with, with the complexities of, you know, medical language and, and engineering and things like that. But even those places can be clearer and they can work to reach people on a, I don't know, just on a more egalitarian level. I just think that's, it's possible for us. And um, so I try to encourage it at every turn. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm reminded, and I, I wish I had looked this essay up before we started recording, but the uh, the essay, Inventing the University, and I can't for the life of me, David Bartholomew, as, as soon as there I said go. I can't think of it, I thought of it, because I'm just that much of a contrarian, I, I contradict myself. But <laughs> uh, yourself. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things that he examines, especially in developmental writing classes is the ways that students who are the most intimidated by being at college sometimes, I mean, write, you know, with all of the vices of the worst journal articles you've ever read. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, that that's fascinating to me because, you know, the, again, the conversation metaphor, I think, you know, is good medicine for that. So. Yeah. Well, I think, we, I always say in my classes, write it ugly and we will clean it up. Um, but I just want you to say a true word. Say, say something clear, say something true. And if it sounds elementary to you, or if it just doesn't sound very polished, that's okay. I just want you to get the, the words on the page. And so I'd much rather that than have to wade through sentences and sentences of academic ease. Yeah. I, I, and again, this is the historical contingency several years ago, and I can't, I can't point to a day when it happened. I stopped saying uh, just get words on the page and started saying put words in the rectangle because I did so much of my work digitally that, you know, <laughs> when I said put words on the page, the students would say, you mean we have to print it? And I'm like, no, 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 Dad, don't kill those trees. They didn't do anything to you. Just put them in the rectangle. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting thing because I actually take I still take everything hard copy. That's interesting. I, say some more about that. I do that because I on canvas or the learning management system, whatever, you can only ever sort of make your comments off to the side. So it's just a big block of commentary. And so by taking a hard copy, I am over here on one side, on the left side, and then I'm on the right side, and then I'm right above this, this sentence and I'm, I'm making smiley faces and little things, but it, it's a much more personal interaction for me. So I feel like I'm engaged with their papers in a much more visceral way with a hard copy. Oh, and that's interesting because my my practice has evolved in a different direction over the years. I, I stopped doing what I called copy editing, editing my students' drafts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead I would make it, I, I would just copy and paste their entire draft into a new space. And then I would in bold face, write two or three sentences after each paragraph. And, you know, if there were line level errors, I'd say, look for this kind of line level error here so that they would have to hunt for it. So, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, you know. My practice one of those... is to, uh, I, sorry, no, I, I mark one and I give a model of how to fix it. And then I say uh, for the rest of this essay, you're going to need to look and I'll put like a little same little dot or something like that next to it. But then now you have a model of how to fix it. And then, um, but I'm not fixing them all. No, I can't do that. But okay, um, good, good, good. But I think everybody has a different practice and um, you know, however it works for you is fine. I'm just such a, I also don't like the screen very much myself. My eyes don't adjust very well to that. So that makes sense. That makes sense. And I, I, I just, uh, I think at some point I looked at the giant stacks of white yeah. paper in my office and I said, what do those trees do to me? But I yeah, know. That... <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Don't remind me I'm a terrible, <laughs> terrible environmentalist. No, that's all right. I, I'm a terrible environmentalist in other ways. So you're still all right. You're still okay. all right. All right. 
Now, in the chapter on being open-minded, you advocate for a practice that I discovered early in my own career teaching writing, and it's absolutely made writing classes more enjoyable than they would have been otherwise. And your idea is listen and read for the other person's best insights. Now, you might not have had student drafts in mind when you wrote that sentence, but I certainly do. Um, where does that where does that sentence, you know, uh, listen and read for the other person's best insights come into play in other places in academia, whether it's peer revision, whether it's grading or whatever, whatever other moments in a writing class? Mm. You know, for me, it's a lot of boots on the ground stuff. So we have library research day. And right then, in that moment, they are massaging topics and they're trying to figure out what they want to do. So they come, they sit down, I I listen, I sift, and then I say, what I'm hearing you say is this. And they say, not quite. And I say, okay, well, tell me, do you really care about this project? And they, not really. <laughs> or this is what I really care about, but I didn't think it was academic enough. And so that's helpful. You know, that's one way of doing it. Um, but we just do a lot of checking in, in class, turn to your partner, articulate your idea and ask one question to your, to your partner about that idea. And they, you know, I actually don't have to give a whole lot of direction there. They're really great at just being kind to one another when they're facing one another. But we do it all the time. We do it almost every day for something or another. Say your idea again. Say how it's changed. Uh, think. Tell me about what thesis you're you're thinking about writing or the, the you know your overall argument and what questions you have about. It. We just it's almost not an assignment. It's just a, a practice in our class. It's just the way that we approach the whole writing enterprise. Well, I mean, that was one of my favorite parts of my job when I was a professor. I, I led uh, new faculty workshops uh, for people fresh out of grad school. And, you know, one of the things that I often told them is, I mean, if you go through student writing looking for the errors, it's going to be the most tedious work you ever do. If you go through looking for what kinds of ideas are about to bloom here, it really can become interesting. So, oh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, uh, I think that absolutely it has a, a place, like you said, you know, between students. Uh, but it's something that, you know, like I said, I've taught, you know, at this point, probably 40 different, you know, new professors. If you do that, you'll actually enjoy grading your papers more. And I'll tell you what, when you get excited about their work, they get excited about their work. When I'm holding a paper that's just a hot mess, and I, the person sitting next to me and I say, well, we got a lot to work on here, but I am so excited about this idea that you've, you've raised here on page three. I think you could just, you know, structure your whole paper around it. And here's how I think you might be able to do that. What do you think? And then, um, then they, they somehow feel that confidence kind of <laughs> rush right back into them. And all those things that I have to say about the structural mess of their paper, they can take that and not feel too bad about it because they have an idea. And that's, man, isn't it glorious to have an idea? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Now, another moment that I enjoyed was your brief commentary on sucky academic conference questions. And I'll note here that I'm using sucky in the technical sense advanced by Nick Riggle in his delightful book on being awesome, a unified theory of how not to suck. And, uh, <laughs> By the way, listeners, you can go listen to that interview on Christian Humanist Profiles once you finish this one. 
Um, Heather, why are academics so horrendous when we get together? I think there's a lot of insecurity and you want to make sure that you are. And I think you, you want to impress people. You know, hey, I'm smart too. Don't we all have imposter syndrome? I dreamt for like three years that they were going to take my PhD away from me because I didn't take a math class. So there, <laughs> all of those things. Right. And I think there is also a, a myth of scarcity. And that is my big thing. I, uh, there is more than enough to go around. There's more than enough space for ideas more than enough space for us to applaud one another. So uh, the whole posturing business and that, uh, look at me, look at me, I wrote a book too. Um, that that doesn't always feel like it's a productive conversation. So um, I, I just went to a conference and it was fine, but what I was missing from it were breakout sessions. I wanted to have some presentations in the morning. And then I wanted to sit in a room with a lot of people and talk about these ideas. But instead, we didn't do that. Um, we just went right from presentation to presentation to presentation. And I, I think we have to make space for those kinds of, not just question answers, but real conversations. And that's why our conference, our sophomore conference, I love. Because we leave like 20 minutes at the end uh, for just people in the room talking to each other about the ideas that they just heard. And it is so edifying. And and there's a fair bit about that sophomore research conference in this book. So, I mean, uh, yeah. without giving away so much that our listeners don't go out and get your book, uh, say a little bit more about that sophomore research conference, but not too much. We want them to okay. get your book. Yeah, sure, sure. No, we just provide an opportunity for all of our, our sophomores, excuse me, to have a conference experience in, a, in probably the most... Um, I don't know, safe and secure way you possibly can. So they're, they're super prepared to present and they're super prepared to attend and they all share the experience. So every single one of them knows how much work went into this conference essay. And so they come into it with a lot of empathy as well. Very cool. That that's one of the things that Emmanuel did largely for juniors and seniors, you know, so that they could present sort of their capstone projects. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it, every few years they would do a session for what they would call emerging writers. And those are always a lot of fun. I mean, precisely for those reasons. So I, I, I do like those, despite the fact that, I mean, one of the things that I miss least about academia is academic conferences. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to some good ones, but um Oftentimes they're pretty disappointing. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that you have because I uh no, like I said, I mean I I've been to a number of them and I've presented at a number of them and I, I don't have a whole lot of fond memories of very many of them at all. No. Now the one the one exception isn't really an academic conference. Uh and I'll just go ahead and say this, knowing that this event might actually be over by the time this goes live, but uh uh Trip Fuller, who runs the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. Uh, has an event called Theology Beer Camp. Uh, that which like is something I'd want to go to. I bet they a, have breakout sessions. <laughs> I, I have been to three of them, and it is just what it sounds like. It's a combination of a theology conference, a church camp, and a keg party. Awesome. And yeah, it really is. It really is. So uh, <laughs> I, I will I'm say here. a theology beer camp I'll go to any old day. Yeah. So <laughs> we don't, I will say disclaimer, we have no beer at our conference. So <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and I mean, when I was uh, employed by a Pentecostal college, I had to say, you know, I, I partook deeply in the theology and not at all of the beer. So, beer. and that was true. <laughs> I, I drank 
Diet Dr. Pepper for all three days of it. And the whole time. What yes, yes, yes. I, I was so well behaved, Heather. You'd be so proud. All right. But <laughs> um, another writer that both of us have learned from, it seems, is Paolo Freire. And as we wind down, I want you to comment on this gem from Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And you, you've made reference to it indirectly already, but the, the line is this, quote, no one can say a true word alone, end quote. How does that play out in the writing classroom? How does that play out in a college faculty? Say some more about true words and uh, where they happen. Well, I, I've always loved this particular quotation. I was thrilled to be able to, it, it came to me immediately when I was writing this part of the book because I firmly believe, I don't, I don't think it's debatable really that we exist in relationship to one another. And um, it's hard really to know what a true word would be in a vacuum. Um, so what feels true to me is in terms of, I, I do think there is truth, right? But what feels true to me about a situation may be complicated by what is true for you in a situation. So even just thinking about a college faculty where um, you know, female faculty may experience you know, faculty engagement different than the male faculty. So having an understanding of how we exist in relationship to one another, relationship to one another can help me speak a truer word about college faculty experience rather than just my college faculty experience. So in the in the classroom as well, I mean, we're just always trying to point to empathy. And um, that is empathy for people who disagree with us, empathy for the subject that we're writing about, empathy for someone who's not even writing anything that we're, we're interested in. You know, you might be writing about fly fishing and I have never touched a, a river my whole life, um, but it matters to you and you matter to me. And that's really important. And that, and that's interesting because I mean I think of the extremes that all of us and I mean this this extends to high school as well, but the extremes were on on one extreme you run into students who are absolutists. I mean you know from somewhere from somebody they picked up you know if you compromise even a little bit you have surrendered the whole game, and then you got other students who are so dedicated to a kind of reticent relativism. That, you know, if they if they even say, you know, um, I'm pretty sure I'm right that the, that nobody's right, even that would make them nervous. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that this idea of, you know, relationship, I mean, is important um, on the levels that you talked about, but also, I mean, just to chase students. And this is a terrible metaphor, but to chase them out of those corners that they dig, dig themselves into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because. I think sometimes you become so entrenched in a particular position that then like you're talking about, it feels like it would damage you to give that position up. And so one of the things we have to do is I make them do counter argument summaries and I make them summarize the opposition in, uh, in such a way that it would be acceptable to the opposition. Uh, that takes a lot of work. They actually have to find sources they disagree with and summarize those sources with empathy. And uh, that oftentimes is one of the most meaningful things that they do. 
Yeah, that 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 was one of my favorite assignments that I would do in the the sophomore literature survey that I used to teach is the disagree essay, mm -hmm. uh, where I mean the only required sources were the literary text and then one um, peer reviewed source that disagreed with their position. Yeah. And they actually had to give reasons why their position was favorable. And I mean, it made them so nervous because so many of them had come to me with this idea that the reason you go to the library is to find sources that agree with me. Right. And, you know, uh, you know, again, chasing them out of that corner, I mean, was a lot of work. But when it when it when it bore fruit, it was good fruit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Very good. Well, Heather, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about writing, teaching, or whatever else as we head towards the door? Hmm. Well, I know that you at the beginning, you talked about you know teaching, writing, and mid-career was oftentimes perceived as a failure, um, but I have I've stayed with it on purpose, and I think it's one of the greatest gifts of my career and teaching students to think well to articulate those thoughts with clarity I mean that is some pretty golden stuff right there <laughs> and I think mostly what I would want everyone to leave with is that student voices are powerful and they matter and they matter now just in the same way that we don't have to wait four years to figure out what our calling is, whatever that is, we can contribute right now. We are called right now to do good work, to love the world, to love each other, all of those things. And we do that in our education too, and specifically in our writing. And I think when you approach writing and thinking and all of these things with this framework of conversation in the back of your mind, all of that, which can be very daunting, as you've pointed out a couple of times, becomes less so, and it becomes more manageable. And it also becomes desirable. We need that connection. We want our voices to be out there. So I hope that that, that would be a takeaway for everybody who heard us today and also maybe takes a look at the book. Heather Hoover, thank you for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Composition is Conversation, Seven Virtues for Effective Writing from Baker Academic. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.